But when, when you're talking about a guy that almost like takes it for granted sometimes, I'm sorry, dude. And I've been a Keith Hernandez fan. I loved him in 86. I loved his, you know, his impact on the New York Mets team. And we've talked about it before about the trade for Keith Hernandez in 1983 being such a huge turning point in, in, the, in, the, in the, the, the switching from a, a bad team to a good team to a very, very good team to a championship team. I, I get that. But does that mean he is 100% qualified to be a broadcaster? And if he is, does that mean he has the right to kind of take it for granted? I don't know. It's something that bothers me. It may not bother you, but it bothers me. But moving forward, within the past week or so, um, you know, it, was, it, was, it was kind of wasn't talked about too much, but uh, the death of uh, Brad Leslie, who was a pitcher for the Cincinnati Reds for a little bit, was more known for really what he did later on when he went to Japan and then he ended up going over and uh, being involved in a lot of movies, particularly Little Big League. He played, uh, he played the closer in Little Big League, the guy with the mustache. Uh, you know, if you remember the movie, maybe you could kind of zero in on him a little bit. Uh, Kevin Elster is also in that movie, but you know, he passes away at the age of 54. And really what he was known as, he was kind of similar to what uh, Mark Fiddrich was as far as being the, you know, the, the, the good player, but also having the sideshow that goes with him. He was known for talking to the ball. He was known for uh, psyching out players, kind of doing silly things, being like a character. And uh, obviously, you know, over here in the past ball show, we always appreciate the characters, particularly myself. But uh, Brad Leslie, you know, at age 54, obviously a little too early for anybody to go. Uh, he, he was he really made his impact in the, the early 80s with the Cincinnati Reds was known as a hard thrower was made into a relief pitcher had, had a couple very good seasons but then uh, ended up signing a contract with the uh, the Hanshin Tigers of, of the Jap Japanese Japanese League and he ends up kind of becoming a folk hero down there and uh, you know a lot of the stuff that he did uh, I think he had a he put a pornographic video up on the on the monitor when they were gonna salute one of the opposing pitchers uh, the, you know, they, the uh, attendance kind of went through the roof in, in his year down there in 1987. And it, they did things on the side, like uh, the, the look-alike contest with the, with the mustache and uh, the, the, you know, the whole animal thing. And Brad Leslie was known as the animal. And the animal was a, was a guy that just, you know, there was a couple different reasons that ended up coming to fruition that he ends up being known for that. Uh, there's a story that, he, that, that this guy actually pushed, a, pushed somebody's car off of a cliff in, Ala in Alaska with, uh, with, with, for the simple reason that somebody wouldn't move their car. Uh, Johnny Bench referred to him a, as an animal. When, uh, when Bench was playing first base for the Reds, a ball was hit to him, and uh, you know, Brad Leslie's going to cover first base, and he, and he yells at Bench, you know, throw me the effing ball. And he says, hey, he, he looked at me like a crazed animal. And you know, a couple different stories involved to how he ends up with the name, but he was known as the animal on the mound, kind of a crazy guy, kind of the guy that fits that persona as the, uh, the no-doubt closer, the, guy, the kind of guy that strikes fear at you. And you know, guys obviously prior to him, like Goose Gossage, Raleigh Fingers, Sparky Lyle, uh, they, were, they were known for what, for what they did on the mound. And Leslie attempted to, uh, to, to kind of take that persona in with him while he was on the mound. And listen, as a closer, yeah, he was kind of a, a poor man's closer. He wasn't, he wasn't a guy that had opportunity to pitch for a long time. 
and obviously is known more for what he did in Japan. And that was only one year. He ends up, uh, he, uh, I think it was two years actually. I'm sorry, '86 and '87, and he ends up offering a contract by the Hanshu Braves in 1988, and he ends up retiring. But you know, here, here, listen. I mean, here's here's a guy that had some similarities to Mark Fidrich, and not not just for the the kind of the quirkiness, the kookiness of what he did on the mound, but you know, listen to this, Mark Fidrich, and obviously he made he, Mark Fidrich was a starting pitcher, and Brad Leslie was a relief pitcher. But Mark Fidrich pitched in 58 games in his career, and Brad Leslie pitched in uh, what was it, 50, 54 games. Uh, obviously, Leslie was a reliever. Fidrich pitched more innings, but you know they both had you know, arm injuries and similar things that ended up uh, holding their career a little short. Uh, the biggest irony, and you look at this from from this perspective, was the fact that they died almost the exact same amount of days uh, living on this earth. Uh, Brad Leslie uh, died, of course, uh, the 27th of, of April at the age of 54 years, seven months, and 16 days. And Mark Fidrich died, of course, it was a couple years ago at age 54 years, seven months, and 30 days. So, so two guys that, that I, I think really do have similarities. And uh, unfortunately, Leslie didn't enjoy the major league success that Mark Fidrich did. Mark Fidrich in Detroit became an absolute icon. You know, every fifth day in 1976, you wanted to go out there and see this guy pitch. Obviously, a lot of times it was every fourth day. And uh, Ralph Hack obviously ran, ran the guy out there until his arm fell off, literally. But you know, it was the same type of thing with Brad Leslie. Unfortunately, it didn't happen in the United States in Major League Baseball, but it did when he was playing for the Hanshu Tigers, the Braves. And he went out there and he, he, he did it, he dominated. The 1986 season was as good as anything. He came out there as a fireballer, uh, you know, kind of psyched out the opposition. And when they came in the ninth inning, you know, they knew the game was over because this guy had that intimidation factor. And you know, a lot of things he did similar to talking to the ball, kind of talking smack, and just going out there with the persona that, that just, I'm, I'm a sideshow, look at me. I'm gonna get some people out though. And uh, you know, extreme similarities between the two players. And I thought it was very interesting. And I think it, it's worth it to me to just kind of acknowledge the guy. And I wrote it in my Bases Empty blog, which of course, feel free to check out on johnpiele.com. I got over a thousand articles up there now. Um, some of them are kind of yearly things, historical things that happen every year that I'll kind of repost to Twitter and uh, get up on mtrmedia.com. Of course, you can always find me on mtrmedia.com uh, slash John Pielli, where you can find all my past ball shows, uh, some of the audio for what's going to be my, uh, my, my afternoon, my evening uh, drive program. It's going to be live from five to seven. So, you know, for those of you who tuned in last Thursday, thank you. Uh, thank you for obviously, uh, you know, hanging around and sticking with me with uh, the unfortunate technical issues. We're, we're doing a live broadcast from Hooters over in Princeton, New Jersey. We're doing it every week. And this is a thing that, listen, a couple more kinks to work out and this is going to be phenomenal. I mean, some of the feedback I got on Thursday was was outstanding. And, you know, I, I, one thing that I really enjoyed kind of saying, and it's it's something I'm actually looking forward to doing, because talking to a lot of these a lot of these people that were there at the Hooters, and you know, kind of going back and forth with them. One of the things that I noticed that people want to do, people want to let out how they feel about something. The Phillies lose a terrible game. They want to they want to get their feelings out. They want to they want to get on Charlie Mantle. They want to get on uh, Cole Hamels or Ryan Howard or whoever cost them the game. Uh, you know, with the with the Mets, they want to get on Sandy Alderson if 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 he, if he they feel that he doesn't. Have 
have this team going in the right direction. And, you know, one thing I'm opening up, and I think it's going to be phenomenal, Thursdays 5 to 7 at the Hooters in Princeton, 400 Mercer Mall. Um, if you guys are able to, to kind of just show up there, be around there between 5 and 7, I'm going to open up uh, the microphone and let you guys come out. If you guys have got a little rant, uh, something that you, that's really bothered you, you hear something I'm talking about you want to comment on, get yourself up there. Be part of the program. And that's one thing that I think is phenomenal. I think it puts MTR in a position where it is kind of ahead of the curve. Because yeah, you call into a radio station, that's one thing. But what, what about the opportunity to be there and actually you know, have yourself recorded, be part of the whole program? Uh, I think that's something that's kind of revolutionary in the whole business. So uh, be, feel free, definitely join us. 400 Mercer Mall, Thursdays 5 to 7, MTR Evening Drive. And it's gonna be a fun, phenomenal program I'm gonna be hosting with Chris Beasy Alley. Of course, you all know from Wired for Sports and the Boston the whole thing. Moving on a little forward, I, I was I was getting into with my blog a couple days ago. We were talking about uh, MLB closers and how things change every year. You talk about a guy like John Axford of the the Milwaukee Brewers, and John Axford did a phenomenal job a couple years ago. He had the 40 plus saves, and he really kind of took over as the team's closer uh, when Trevor Hoffman ends up kind of fading away and retiring. And just like that, he's done. I mean, he's not done pitching, but he's no longer the closer. He's in the in the uh, Milwaukee Brewers bullpen, hoping maybe for another chance, but maybe trying to solidify himself as an eighth inning guy. But it's just amazing that the closer position isn't as guaranteed as it was before. I mean, you know, Joel Hanrahan in Boston, his injury has given the opportunity to Andrew Bailey to be the closer, and now you got a little bit of a controversy there. And you look at some other some other teams. Uh, just because they have a bona fide guy at the end of games, it does not mean that it's going to be like that. It's not going to consistently be that guy. I mean, all you need is a couple bad games and you're all of a sudden going to start thinking about the other side of things. You're going to start thinking about who else could come in and get the outs in the ninth inning of a baseball game. And I think I think those are things that always have to be thought about. And they, they, they don't get considered to be that serious. But you, you look at situations that of teams that have depth in that position, whether it's Atlanta with Craig Kimbrell. Craig Kimbrell, along with Araldis Chapman, and of course Mariano Rivera, are probably considered the best at their positions, the best at what they do right now. And that being said, uh, that both, all of those teams have some depth behind them. Let's say one of those guys gets hurt. You saw Mariano get hurt last year, and uh, uh, Rafael Soriano jumping in there and saving 42 games for now. Uh, you know, you know, if uh, Cincinnati has an issue, Sean Marshall can jump in. There's a couple other guys in that bullpen that can hold the job as a closer for that team. You know, uh, you know that. Uh, you know, of course, Jonathan Broxton's still there. I mean, I'm, I, you know, Atlanta's got Venters, who's hurt now, but it also has Jordan Walden and Eric O'Flaherty. So, if any of these teams hit an injury, they, they have guys that are capable of filling into these spots. Uh, you know, obviously, I think the deepest bullpen, in my opinion, one of the deepest bullpens is the Arizona Diamondbacks. You know, who have JJ Putz as the closer. They have David Hernandez, who's going to be an absolute stud closer in the future, whether it's with Arizona or for another team. And yeah, they just they just brought in Heath Bell, and I know everybody likes to uh, dress up for the Heath Bell baseball funeral, but this guy still has something to give. I mean, he was in a terrible situation with, with Miami last year. A lot was expected out of him. That team underachieved. A lot of it had to do with Bell's performance as a closer in the ninth inning of those games. But 
here's a guy that still has something left. He he got, he absolutely ruled as a setup man with the San Diego Padres for Trevor Hoffman. And of course, Hoffman ends up going to Milwaukee. Bell takes over as a closer, has a couple good years there, gets himself the contract with the Miami Marlins. Marlins trade him to the Arizona Diamondbacks, and here you go. But the depth that the Arizona Diamondbacks have in their bullpen, they have any one of those three guys that could step out there and be the man. And a lot of other teams are in that position. And just because they have a guy that's kind of uh, given that title, the quote-unquote closer, it doesn't mean it's going to stay that way. And you look at a lot of other teams, and, you know, the St. Louis Cardinals got the injury to Jason Mott, and uh, Mitchell Boggs is in there now, and they're trying to figure out who's going to pitch the ninth inning of their game. Mark Ripchinski was sent down to the minors. Uh, you know, you got the Chicago Cubs, Carlos Marmol. They're trying to do everything they can to replace this guy. I mean, I know he's on a contract. I know he's getting paid good money, but he is probably the worst closer that I've ever seen. And that's saying a lot. I mean, you've seen some, I've seen some bad closers, but Carlos Marmol on a day-in and day-out basis is just not that good. And you know you got the you got the Japanese guy Kajuchi Fujikawa who was brought in there essentially to eventually take over the, the closers role, and he struggled. So you look at all these different teams, and whether it's the Mets or the Yankees, I think the Mets are going to stick with Bobby Parnell as long as they possibly can. Frank Francisco was signed last year to be a closer. Even when he comes back healthy this year, I don't think he's going to get that chance. So looking at it that way, you know, the Yankees are going to obviously stick with Mariano Rivera. The Phillies are obviously going to stick with Jonathan Papelbon. But many other teams are going to be switching closers. And it's not all the, the teams or, or the situations where you say the guy is just better than the other guy. I mean, you look at the Chicago White Sox with Addison Reed. Addison Reed has done a phenomenal job over the past year plus as the closer. But uh, listen, you give him a couple bad games and you're going to start thinking about well, whether it's Jesse Crane or Matt Thornton or Matt Lindstrom are, are those guys that are all going to come in there and, and fill in. And I'm going to get into the one closer change that I predict this year that's going to be the biggest one. And it involves the Detroit Tigers. And, uh, you know, you think when with Detroit Tigers closers, a bunch of things come to your mind. You think, all right, Jose Valverde is back. You know, he's going to be the guy. Uh, you think Bruce Rondon, the 22-year-old youngster who never pitched above A ball until this year, is up in the major leagues now. He's going to kind of be the next Craig Kimbrell. Or Joaquin Benoit, who did a good job. Or Phil Koch, who got a couple saves last year. Or even Octavio Dotel, the, uh, uh, the guy who's trying to pitch for every single Major League Baseball team. I'm telling you this, and mark my words, right here in the Passball Show, MTR Radio Network. John Pielli, I'm saying it. Al Albuquerque will be the closer for the Detroit Tigers by the end of this year. Not only that, but he's going to hold on within the next several seasons. And he's going to be the guy. And, and don't, don't believe me, look at this guy's numbers over the past couple of years. From 2011, he pitched to a 160 ERA in 48 games you know, when he came up from the minors. Last year, he was hurt for most of the season, but did nothing but dominate in his 16 or so games as a relief pitcher for the Tigers. Here's a guy with a high 90s fastball, a, a wicked breaking ball, and a slider. And he has the makeup to be a closer. And I don't know if Jim Leland just doesn't see it yet, but eventually he will. He's going to run this guy out there. He's going to get his share outs. Yes, he struggled a little bit in the playoffs over the last couple seasons, particularly against the Yankees. But you're looking at a guy that's coming in there as a middle reliever. And once he grabs that job as a closer, he is not going to turn, to, uh, turn it away. 
And by the end of the season, you're going to look and all you fantasy baseball freaks that are going to pick up every closer known to man, you're going to see a certain time where a bunch of you guys are going to be picking up Al Albuquerque from the Detroit Tigers. And it's not that Jose Valverde can't get the job done. Valverde has thrown the ball well. Of course, he had that delayed start to the season because of the free agency, the whole thing. Season ends up starting. He signs with the Detroit Tigers, our minor league contract. They pitch him down in extended spring training. He passes all the tests, and they, they redo his contract. He's got a major league deal. He's up in the major league team. And it's, not, it's not that I think Jose Valverde is the worst closer. I said Carlos Marmol is. There's nothing that's ever going to happen to change my mind when it comes to that. Uh, Valverde's got his issues. He, he is like most closers. He is like Armando Benitez. He is like Francisco Rodriguez. He is like a lot of closers out there in baseball. Baseball that get trusted year in and year out to go out there and make all that make all these appearances and get the job done. And you know, looking at it that way, I think Jose Valverde is going to end up being kind of a setup man. And does that mean he's going to pitch poorly? No. I could see him going out there, still keeping a two or so ERA, still having more strikeouts than innings pitched. But in the end, I do think that this guy is going to be more of a setup man, a middle relief type of guy. And I think that's what Dave Dombrowski was kind of going for when he was looking to move on from him in the first place. You know, let's be honest. I mean, if you think the Detroit Tigers wanted Jose A. Valverde at the end of, after the end of last season, you're, you're mistaken. I mean, how does a guy go through the entire free agent process, the entire offseason, the entire spring training, and not have a contract if his current team or the team that he just pitched for still wants him? Dombrowski ends up looking at the whole situation, saying, hey, this guy is still out there. Let's see if he's got something left. If he does, he obviously helps us. And it, it, wasn't, it wasn't for the sake of saying, hey, this is a guy at the top of, of our radar. Bruce Rondon was a guy that they wanted to slip in and be the ace closer. Listen, it doesn't always happen that way. Craig Kimbrels don't, don't just fall from the sky. This guy could be a very good closer, Rondon, I'm speaking of, but it's maybe something that may take a little more time than we all may get the chance to anticipate. And I think it's something that's got to be looked at. But we're going to get more into closer talk. We're going to play the Lee Tinsley interview in a little bit. Once again, John Pielli, Passball Show, MTR Radio Network. Uh, hope you guys are enjoying from the new time, 10 to 12, right here on the MTR Radio Network. Uh, we're going to take a quick break, be back with a lot more stuff going on after this. Looking to try something different for dinner tonight? Why not check out Katina's? Katina's Greek Restaurant is an Ocean City tradition. Serving all of your favorite Greek dishes, including heroes, kebabs, the best Greek salads, pastries, and so much more, Katina's is famous for their Mediterranean house salad dressing. You can enjoy the taste of summer year-round by having their famous dressing shipped to your door. Purchase online today at katinasfoods.com. That's katinasfoods.com. Katina's Greek Restaurant is open all year. Visit them at 501 Central Ave in Ocean City, New Jersey. 501 Central Ave in Ocean City, New Jersey. And check out their website at katinasfoods.com. And follow them on Facebook and Twitter. Katina's Greek Restaurant has the Jersey Shore's best Greek and American food. So come on down to Katina's Greek Restaurant, an Ocean City tradition. M. T. R.
This is the Pat's Ball Show, of course, on the MTR Radio Network. Thanks for tuning in today. Uh, we were talking a little bit about closers in Major League Baseball and how, let's, let's be honest, from one week to the next, it's going to change. It's going to continue to be different um, in regards to, uh, to teams. You know, in Milwaukee, uh, John Axford's been out as a closer. They go with a guy by the name of Jimmy Henderson, who's gotten a very, uh, off to a very good start. And let's be honest, you move a couple months down the road, it could still be Axford, could be somebody else, could be Francisco Rodriguez, for all we know, who, of course, signed a minor contract with the Milwaukee Brewers and is pitching an extended spring training right now but you know you look at all these different teams and to, to me I mean you know really outside of Chapman Kimbrell Rivera and Papelbon uh, I can't see too many closers that are totally uh, etched in stone I mean you start with the, uh, the the San Francisco Giants who Sergio Romo getting the last out in the World Series who would have thought that it would have been Sergio Romo getting the the, the out of the the 2012 World Series as a closer when Brian Wilson was a guy in 2010. And of course, Wilson ends up having a Tommy John surgery. Uh, who knows when he's going to pitch again? He's, he's not a, employed by any team at the moment. But, you know, you look at really what goes on in San Francisco and Sergio Romo and Santiago Casilla. Have, have absolutely done a good job between the two of them, splitting up the eighth and ninth inning duties while Romo kind of grabbing the job as a closer. But if Romo stumbles, listen, I, I, I think Casilla will be a guy that's going to get a chance with Bruce Bochy. He has a chance to go out there and get 30 saves if Romo stumbles or gets injured or does not get the job done. I think the biggest change that you're going to see, really outside of what I mentioned before with the Detroit Tigers and Al Albuquerque, remember, Al Albuquerque will be the closer for the Detroit Tigers at the end of the year. It, is going to be in Los Angeles. And to me, it's kind of a no-brainer. Brandon League has the reputation, of course, of being a closer. He was with the Seattle Mariners, ends up losing a job to Tom Wilhelmson. And we'll get into Mariners in a second. But uh, with Wilhelmson becoming a closer, made League expendable. He was traded to the Dodgers last year and served, was a serviceable setup man for Kenley Jansen, who, who is really outside of Chapman and Kimbrell, is really the most dominant relief pitcher in the National League. Now, the Dodgers end up saying, all right, we're going to bring back League. League wants to be paid as a closer. League wants to be used as a closer. We're going to give him the opportunity to close, making Jensen probably the most dominant eighth inning guy in Major League Baseball. And really, Jensen has closer stuff. I'm sorry, Jansen, Ken, Ken, Ken Lee Jansen. Let's get the name right. Ken Lee Jansen. All right, we got it. But, you know, Jans, Jansen's a guy that really, you know, is going to average, what, about 12, 13 strikeouts per nine innings pitched. He does have that, that moxie of a closer. And Don Mattingly obviously wants a, a guy that's going to go out there and be dominant. Brandon League's good. Brandon League throws the ball hard. Brandon League is going to get his share of saves, obviously but he's not a strikeout pitcher. He throws hard, but he's not a strikeout pitcher. If you look at his strikeout numbers over the last several years, sometimes he has struggled to get to a strikeout an inning. And let's be honest, you've got a closer, you've got a guy that's known for throwing hard, you want him to go out there and have over a strikeout an inning, over nine strikeouts per nine innings pitched as the stat ends up going out there to show. 
Ken, Ken Lee Jansen's going to be the closer for the Los Angeles Dodgers, probably not before very long. And I don't know what you do with Brandon League. Do you give League kind of kind of that super eighth inning guy, a guy that's a closer? He wants he's getting closer money, but you want him you want him to have the confidence that he's still going to be the guy. Obviously, that's up to Don Manningly and pitching coach Rick. Peter, I'm sorry, Rick uh, Honeycutt. To, to kind of keep the confidence in them while making this move. And it's going to be something that's going to take some time, of course. You know, you're not going to be able to go out there and say, hey, after a blown save or two, it's time to pull out a guy that's been a closer in the major leagues for the last couple seasons. But uh, if you're the Los Angeles Dodgers and you got a brain on your shoulder, you know the guy that you're going to go to in the ninth inning in situations like that is going to be Jansen and not Brandon League. But as you look through other other teams in the division, I told you, maybe not by the end of this year, but hopefully next year, if things end up going going well, David Hernandez is probably going to be the closer in Arizona. J.J. Putz is a guy that's kind of on a year-to-year contract type of thing. Um, you look, he's been around for a while. Uh, he certainly has something left. He could certainly go out there and get 40 saves this year for an Arizona team that could end up winning. And if he, if he had 42 saves in the Diamondbacks 190 games, I wouldn't be shocked. But when it comes down to it, once again, we're talking about the younger guy, the guy who's established himself, the guy who has the more strikeouts per innings pitched. And that's going to be David Hernandez. David Hernandez came up in the Baltimore Orioles organization as a starter, but was known as a top pitching prospect, was known as a guy that throws extremely hard, was known as a guy that can go out there and miss bats. He came in Arizona in a trade, and he's been phenomenal the last couple of years as a middle reliever. He's been an eighth-inning guy. He's shown that he can do the job. So all it's going to take, unfortunately, is a guy, a proven guy like J.J. Putz, to stumble a little bit. And if that happens, David Hernandez is going to be another guy that all our fantasy people, oh, we got to get a closer. We got to get this guy's closer now. We got to pick him up. Uh, he's going to be picking up. And once that happens, David Hernandez, I think 2014, will be the closer for the Arizona Diamondbacks. Yes, J.J. Putz could still be there. Yes, Keith Bell will probably still be there since he's under contract. But I think in the end, it's going to be a transition to David Hernandez. And you can see how David Hernandez and even Al Albuquerque and Kenley Jansen end up adjusting to the job of being the guy in the ninth inning. Now, I think out of the three, you want to say maybe one will be really successful. The other two could be okay. Maybe one of them will fail completely. Yeah, that's pretty much the way it goes. You don't just take a guy that throws 100 miles an hour and say he's automatically going to be a bona fide shutdown, no doubt closer. It just doesn't work that way. And you know, you see so many guys known for the, these big arms. Um, even Bobby Parnell with the Mets was throwing was throwing nothing but gas for the last couple of years, but he was getting lit up. And it was because he had no secondary pitches. Now he's worked a curveball and a slider in there, and he changes speeds a little more. And he kind of leaves to the to the hitter a little more of a of a uh, un- uncertainty of what's going to come up there. That has made him a good closer. You know, do you want to get into what do you what do I think of Bobby Parnell as a closer for the New York Mets? Listen, is it, if he's a closer five years from now, I'd be shocked. And it's nothing against him. I just think the whole closer position, the extra added uh, kind of uh, trouble that it that it's added, the stuff that gets put in your head, not everybody can handle it on a year in and year out basis, and that's what makes what Mariano Rivera has done in Major League Baseball so much more impressive, because it does get in your head, no matter who you are, no no matter whether you're the guy that can just let anything happen and let it roll over your back. 
blowing a big save in a playoffs is going to stick with you. It's something that you're not going to forget. And Mariano Rivera did that. He did that in 1997 when he gave up that big home run against Cleveland. He did that in 2001 when he when he obviously lost that game seven of the World Series to the Diamondbacks. And and you know obviously his throwing error had a lot to do with it. And obviously, Yankee fans might say, oh, my God, how could you say anything bad about Mariano Rivera? Obviously, he's the greatest closer to ever pitch. He's the greatest guy to ever pitch the ninth inning in the history of Major League Baseball, hands down. But it just shows no matter how good you are, you're going to have letdowns. You're going to give up home runs to guys that you wouldn't think in a million years would ever hit a home run off of you. And you need to have it within. You need to have the hoods for the balls to be able to go out there after giving up that big home run and go out there the next day and not think about it as much as it wants to stay in your head. And to me, I, I have a hard time making that, trans, that transition and saying that, that every guy can do it. I mean, I just don't see it that way. But moving on, you look at the AL East, uh, Fernando Rodney, he's a guy that I, I, just, I just don't believe in. I think he had a phenomenal year. He deserves some Cy Young votes, which he got last year. The .6 ERA, the whole thing, he did a phenomenal job. He deserves all the credit that he's gotten, but he's not going to be able to duplicate what he did last season. If he does, it, it, it's an unbelievable story because here's a guy that didn't have that capability a couple years ago. The Detroit Tigers couldn't wait to get him off their team, and he signed with the Los Angeles Angels, and he, and he, he failed as a closer there. So what's to say all of a sudden he has it together and not only that, but he's going to put up numbers that have never been put up before? Listen, one season is great and he deserves all the credit for it. Congratulations, Fernando Rodney. You had a phenomenal season in 2012. But what does that say for the future? Does that say that you could realistically expect this guy to pitch to a below one ERA every season? The answer is no. And the question is, what happens when he blows a couple saves back-to-back? -back? Obviously, he's not going to lose his job right away. He's got some time. Uh, he, he's going to have to have probably a bad month or two before the Tampa Bay Rays are thinking about replacing him. But what happens when he goes out there and has that five-run inning, and all of a sudden that ERA is not going to be able to get under one? Then he may have to settle for a two-and-a-half ERA to get 40 saves. Is he going to be that good? And, and I think the question is still out there. We don't know. You know, with, with the Boston Red Sox, I think the Boston Red Sox really have a chance, similar to the Arizona Diamondbacks, of having the best 7th, 8th, ninth inning combo in Major League Baseball. And yes, you could say Atlanta's up there, you bring O'Flaherty, Walden, Venters to get to Kimbrell, you know, it is great. The Diamondbacks, I really like what, what Heath Bell being a 7th inning guy, if he could just take the pressure off himself and just kind of go out there and do what he's doing. You know, if he could pitch the seventh inning like he pitched the ninth inning a couple years ago for San Diego, then that's going to be pretty good. Get him the ball to David Hernandez who gets the ball to puts, and that's not a bad setup. But the best seventh, eighth, ninth inning combo is going to be in Boston. And, and the, the, one of the most underrated middle relief pitchers out there is Koji Uhara. And he, he, he did a phenomenal job a couple years ago with Baltimore. He kind of grew himself from being a starter to be a late inning reliever and not even a closer to be a setup man. And it's not easy to do. But once he's taken over that role, he has taken it and run with it. For what he's done with the Texas Rangers over the last couple seasons, for what he's done and going to continue to do with Boston, being that guy in the seventh inning is going to be great. It's going to be an advantage for the Red Sox playing those other teams in the American League East. And, and that being said, you know, you, you get him the ball to Andrew Bailey, who gets the ball to Joel Hanrahan, and all of a sudden it becomes a six-inning game. 
And that's why I think the Red Sox and the Diamondbacks could benefit from having such strong back ends of the bullpen because your starters don't have to go out there and pitch seven, eight innings. And when you've got good starters, like you do in both in both cases, you know, you got Ian Kennedy, you got you know, some of the other guys with the Arizona Diamondbacks, and you got you're, you got a rotation led by Clay Buckholz, who's pitching unbelievable right now. And you only have to get those guys to go six innings in a close game. I think that's something that, that certainly has to uh, bring an advantage. And I don't see any other team in the American League East, particularly the Yankees. You know, everybody wants to say, hey, the Yankees are always going to be fine because they got Mo, and you got David Robertson to, to pitch the eighth inning, which is great. But now they have to mix and match in their seventh inning. The Red Sox don't. The Red Sox can go to O'Hara, who was a closer-type pitcher in the seventh inning. And Billy Wagner said it years ago, the game has changed to a point where you don't just need a ninth-inning closer. You need an eighth-inning closer, and you need a seventh-inning closer. And yes, if your starting pitchers are good enough to give you seven innings on a consistent basis, like you could pretty much expect with the top three with the Philadelphia Phillies, then it could be an eighth and it could be a seventh-inning game instead of a sixth-inning game. Because the Phillies got their eighth inning guy in Adams and their closer in Papelbon. So if they could get Halliday and Lee and Hamels to go out there and give them seven innings in a close game, then they could have they could shut it down in the eighth and ninth inning. I don't know if they could shut it down in the seventh inning. Same thing with the Yankees. You know, they're gonna go with guys like Boone Logan and you know, some of the other guys that they got in there, uh, Jabba Chamberlain. And, you know, Jabba Chamberlain obviously is a guy that could develop into that guy. I just think he has to have the confidence, he has to believe in himself, he has to continue to work at it. And maybe Jabba Chamberlain could eventually become a Koji Uhara or a role that a guy like Keith Bell has with the Arizona Diamondbacks. But right, right now, I don't see it. And right now, the Boston Red Sox have the advantage that it's a six-inning game with them because they got three guys that could, that could close out innings as opposed to close out games. Uhara in the seventh, uh, Bailey in the eighth, and Hanrahan in the ninth. And that, to me, is a big deal. And obviously, it gives you options. Hanrahan's hurt, Bailey steps in. Bailey gets hurt, you could throw Uhara in. And you know, you look at some of the other guys that they have in that pen. Janichi uh, uh, Tozawa, uh, you know, has, has done a, has done a phenomenal job coming back off the Tommy John surgery. Daniel Bard is still in that organization, kind of like the the Jabba experiment of the Boston Red Sox. Maybe he can come back and have some sort of impact. But but on on other teams, you really look at the the AL West for a second. And Grant Balfour is a guy who uh, has been kind of a journeyman setup man reliever that has taken the role of a closer. Uh, you also have Ryan Cook there. Um, you know that's going to kind of go back and forth as the season goes on based on performance. And that's the way Bob Melvin likes to run his bullpen almost by a committee. The Seattle Mariners, in my opinion, are going to be the most interesting spot when you're looking about the ninth inning in a game. Because uh, Tom Wilhelmson has certainly established himself as a very good closer, as a guy that you know can go out there and get the strikeouts and blow away hitters in the ninth inning. But they have some other guys that nobody really talks about. And these are guys that, listen, I think you have to do your research to kind of maybe a guy like Dave Sims who does the games for Seattle, uh, the, the television games for Seattle, does a phenomenal job there, can probably have a little more perspective on it. Of course, he's been on the past ball show before. but. To, to, see, to see the other arms that they have in that bullpen, a guy like Stephen Pryor, hard-throwing right-hander that would have been included in a trade for Justin Upton if the, the Mariners and the Diamondbacks made that trade. He's a guy that throws 90-plus. Charlie Furbush, a guy who was acquired in a Doug Fister trade with the Tigers a couple of years ago, throws 95-plus. 
Carter Caps is a right-hand pitcher that can go out there and pitch about, you know, throw about 95. So you got three guys there that are all going to kind of be right on the doorstep if Tom Wilhelmson either gets hurt or struggles. And I think those are things that really have to be studied, they have to be understood, they have to be looked at because I mean, Will Helmson, maybe as trade bait, could turn out to help the Seattle Mariners down the road because of the depth that they have in their bullpen. And, you know, I, I'm, not, I'm not looking at what, you know, the, the ninth inning situation is going to look like in Houston. It looks like it's going to be a tough season. Um, but, you know, the Los Angeles Angels, for what they have, uh, you know, healthy Ryan Madsen's probably going to be the guy. Ernesto Frieri has kind of emerged over the last couple seasons as a guy that can do the job. And that all being said, you're looking you're looking at uh, you know a couple guys that you know may switch around. And but one thing I don't believe in as I close out this topic here, we're going to take another break in a little bit. But it, you know, looking at in my in my opinion, the whole going out there in a pennant race trading for a reliever, I, I don't think it's as as, it's as gung ho as it's been over the last several seasons. Like you don't go out there and trade for a goose gossage anymore. Uh, even even a even a guy like um, Jonathan Broxton, who was traded from the Royals to the Reds last year, ends up not necessarily helping him out that much because Chapman's the closer. They have set up men in certain spots, and they, they, they were just they were just simply able to 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 kind of move on, even whether he was there or whether he wasn't there. You go out there and you get an eighth inning guy from another team, or you get a closer from a team that's not any good. It's not a guarantee that they're going to fit in and be that dominant guy that you're hoping. And that, that, that definitely impacts the trade market because for a team that knows that this isn't that much of a guarantee, are you going to go out there and trade a top prospect for somebody like that? The answer is absolutely no. And, you know, that's, that's one thing that has to be looked at. Closers of Major League Baseball, my friends. Uh, John Pele, Passball Show, and TR Radio Network. We're going to take a little bit of a break. Uh, we'll be back to finish up the program after this.
Saturday from 10 to 12 from now on, taking you right up until Garden State Radio, and it's going to be a you know a phenomenal thing going on. I got a lot of great interviews planned over the next several weeks and months, so definitely stay. Make sure you tune in. Of course, uh, stay tuned to me Thursdays from 5 to 7 in my regular time. I'll be live from Hooters in Princeton, New Jersey, 400 Mercer Mall. Like I said, you're going to be able to interact with the program. Uh, there's nothing better. I mean, right now I'm in a studio with four walls. Uh, when I'm at Hooters, I'm right there in front of anybody. You could come up and talk to me. If you disagree with something I say, I'll get you up on the air. But well, we're going to make this whole thing happen. But moving forward, we're, we're thinking about uh, something that kind of uh, I thought was very interesting the other night. You find out that uh, Jack Morris makes some strong accusations against uh, Clay Buckholz, the pitcher of the Boston Red Sox, claiming that he's throwing a spitball. And for Morris, what he even said, it, it wasn't something that he saw uh, during the actual television broadcast of the show. Uh, Morris, of course, is one of the broadcasters for the Toronto Blue Jays, and the Blue Jays were playing the Red Sox the other day. Morris says this is something that was pointed out to him after the game. And Morris sat there, he said, for a couple hours and studied the video, studied the tape, and he said that he, he noticed on several occasions Buckholz kind of going to his shirt, which seemed to be lubricated in something, whether it was rosin, whether it was hairspray, whether it was pine tar. We, we don't know exactly what the substance was, but it seemed like he was applying a foreign substance to the baseball. And obviously, the manager, John Farrell of the Red Sox, who, of course, was the Blue Jays manager over the last couple of years, shoots back and says, listen, uh, anytime somebody pitches well or plays well, they're going to be open to criticism and you say it can't be for real. Um, you know, paraphrasing kind of what he said. But, you know, the bottom line is, listen, uh, do you think do do you think as a listener that stuff like that still goes on? That, uh, I mean, do you think that there's, uh, there's obviously steroids still in baseball? I've said this all along in the past ball show. Uh, players are using. HDH steroids, they're just not getting caught. They're coming up with the best chemicals to stay ahead. And we're talking particularly hitters here, but obviously pitchers use them too. But the bottom line is they, if they can take a chemical knowing that nobody's going to detect and get an advantage over it, they're going to be able to do it. And I think the same applies if you could either, uh, you know, kind of you know, put, a, put a little hole in the ball as it's going, like uh, Mike Scuff and the Houston Astros did in 1986. Or you could put a substance on a ball that's going to allow it to move a little differently than you would if you normally threw the ball. Obviously, pitchers are going to do that. Gaylord Perry made the Hall of Fame off of that. Gaylord Perry was a Hall of Fame pitcher because he threw the spitball and talked about it afterwards. So you're not going to go once he releases the book and say, all of a sudden, he's not a Hall of Famer. So obviously, pitchers are out there trying to get that distinct advantage. 
which doesn't always come so easily. But that being said, uh, listen, is Clay Buckholtz uh, lubricating the ball? I don't know. I, I think I think it's something that's probably going to get a little more attention now as he goes out there to make his next start. I think uh, you know the pitching coach and John Farrell, the manager of the Red Sox, are going to say, listen, if this is something that you're doing, I, I suggest you kind of do it on a down low. Don't make it so obvious because Jack Morris, from what he sees with the videos, he says it was distinctly obvious that he kept going to his to his pitch his non-pitching shoulder, which was obviously lubricated in something and applying it to the ball. So obviously Clay Buckholz knows when he goes out there in his next start, not only are every all the fans and the opposition going to be studying what he's doing with the baseball, but the umpires are going to be in on it too. And I wouldn't be surprised if Clay Buckholz would continue to do that for another start. That he, he may get thrown out of the game next time. Because umpires are going to be in on it, especially if you get a jackass like Bob Davidson who thinks that everybody goes out there to see him. If Bob Davidson's on the umpiring staff in some way, shape, or form, you know he's going to be right in his face because he wants people to come out there and watch Bob Davidson, not the baseball players that are out there. But listen, that's a whole other subject. But listen, dude, I want to thank you guys for tuning in to the show. Phenomenal job. Like I said, I wouldn't be able to do this without the great listeners that I have. Uh, make sure you tune in next week. We're going to be from 10 to 12 next Saturday. Saturday. And, uh, of course, the uh, afternoon drive, the evening drive on the MTR Radio Network, Thursdays from 5 to 7 at Hooters over in Princeton, New Jersey. So thanks a lot for your time, and uh, obviously we'll be with you next week. Take care, guys.